We can turn with me your Bibles to Prophet Zechariah, chapter 6, for our Lord's Supper meditation. We'll return to Jonah next week, and then we'll start the prophet Nahum after Jonah. Uh, but this evening, we'll look at Zechariah, chapter 6. Uh, we've spent almost two years now going through covenants for our Lord's Supper series. Uh, we are looking at the covenant of redemption and have been on it for quite some time. Uh, this will probably be the second last in that series. So I'll do one more next time, Lord willing. Uh, but we just, it's helpful for us to see that this idea of covenants is throughout scripture. And even this eternal transaction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is also found in God's word as well. There are other places that speak about it, uh, uh, but I've done them quite a bit. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. Uh, Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53. I've done those quite a few times uh, in our church over the five years that we've uh, been going. Uh, so uh, you could go listen to those again if you'd like. Uh, but we'll look at Zechariah 6 this evening, and next time we'll look at Ephesians 2. But Zechariah chapter 6, we'll read verses 9 through 15. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go to the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobijah, Judiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for Christ, our Lord, and Christ, our King. Thank you that he is the high priest. He is our King of the order of Melchizedek, and he is the one who builds his church. And we ask that tonight that we would know Christ's nearness with us, that we would know Christ dwelling amongst us. And thank you that Christ, who is the head, is building the temple, which is his body. And thank you that we, the church, are his body. And we're thankful that he is building us, he is nourishing us, he is strengthening us. And we're thankful that we even see that blessed eternal plan. Uh, we see it in action even this night. And we pray that this would give us encouragement, this would uplift our spirits. This would also, ca also cause us to, be, uh, uh, to revere you, to rejoice with trembling as we come before you, the God of heaven and earth. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you have proclaimed who you are and what you've done uh, through Christ Jesus in your word. And we pray that you would uplift us now as we come to your word. Give us illumination from on high as we come to consider difficult subjects that are truly too high and lofty for us. Thank you for men of old who've thought of these things and sought to make sure they fancy you to be what you are not. And so we ask, oh God, that we would do the same. We ask that you give us illumination and aid by your spirit to understand what is going on, at least in part. And we're thankful that we have that spirit who indwells each and every one of us. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, we are in that section of the covenant series that focuses on the kingdom of Christ. We looked at the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant that God enters into with his elect saints, that he offers unto them salvation through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we proclaim the gospel, when we call, uh, we call sinners to come and repent and believe, we're offering that covenant of grace. Come and believe and enter into this blessed covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ and find forgiveness of sins in him. But that covenant of grace that we see in time and space is founded on that eternal transaction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we call the eternal covenant of redemption uh, in the Trinity. It is that pre-temporal, so eternal, intra-Trinitarian agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is one will in threefold execution, and it is a covenant of works for Christ. The second person would be incarnate, and he would obey the Father in his hu uh, human nature. He would seek to be obedient to the Father as the last Adam. He would be incarnate to be obedient, which we see in the incarnation. 
But really what the covenant of redemption is, is it teaches us something about God's plan of salvation. That's really what it is. Uh, Sam Renahan says, Scripture presents that eternal purpose and promise of salvation to mankind metaphorically in the mode of a covenant transacted between the persons of the Trinity. And we've looked at various passages that teach this explicitly. Luke twenty two twenty nine, Jesus says to the disciples, I covenant to you a kingdom just as the Father covenanted a kingdom to me. So we see that there is that there, other places as well, Ephesians 1, and as I said, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, and the servant songs of Isaiah. But another one of those places I do believe is Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. And specifically speaking about the execution of that when it comes to the redemption of sinners in the branch. And hopefully we'll see that tonight in Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 6, verses 9 through 15. But as far as the problem that emerges from these verses, the problem I do think is clear, and it is the problem that the people in exile, or I guess coming out of exile, had after the old covenant people were vomited out of the land. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. The people of Israel did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, and so God kicked them out of the land. They were in exile for quite some time, and then finally, God said, you may now return. You may now come back to your land. But as they come back, there are still problems. They still need a temple, and they still need a king. And even at the time of Zechariah's prophecy, yes, they have come back, but the temple has not been rebuilt just yet. Where is God's dwelling? Where is he with his people? Where is God's promises? Where is the king on the throne? And even when they return, it's a return under gray skies. They're still waiting for that king who would come. And thankfully, we see that king who has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfully, it's no surprise to any of us here that the branch is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no surprise that the one who is both king and priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we, the church, are also called exiles, according to Peter, Canada is not our home. The United States is not our home. Heaven is our home. And thankfully, we know where our strength lies. Thank we've had a king who has come. We don't need to worry about God's promises because they have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see our king is on the throne now. We have our high priest who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the temple of the Lord is being built, namely his church. And it was something the remnant in Zechariah's day longed for. The prophets long to see what you see. And it's a blessing to be part of God's redemptive history as he engages in saving his people and advancing his kingdom through his church. It is a blessing to know that our king reigns and the gospel advances. So in Zechariah 6, verses 9 through 15, the Lord prophesies concerning the coming of a priest who is also a king. And that would have been very puzzling for the people a priest who is also a king. And we'll look at this prophecy under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the temple the king builds, verses 9 through 13a. Then secondly, we'll see the peace the priest brings, verses 13b through 15. So the temple the king builds, and then the peace the priest brings. So let's first look at the temple the king builds in verses 9 through 13a. And we see this prophecy, we see this command concerning the crown that must be put on Joshua, the high priest. But as I said, context uh, or context is important. And as I said, Zechariah is that post-exilic prophet. Uh, again, the problem of exile. What about the Davidic covenant? What about the promise God made to David? What about his king on the throne? Will that be fulfilled? Because there is no king on the throne. And Zechariah is set in and around uh, or after uh, the first return. There are three returns in God's word in Ezra and Nehemiah or the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so this is perhaps during and around the return under Zerubbabel, who was of the line of David, who was very kingly in a lot of ways. 
And Zechariah really is a difficult book to understand. Out of all the 12, and I'm thinking about doing the 12 minor prophets after we do Nahum, or at least finishing them, because we've started them. We've done Jonah, Nahum, I've done Malachi before. So why not do the other nine? But Zechariah, I'm a little afraid of. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Zechariah uh, is, is tough. Zechariah is a difficult book, but it's also very important. It's influential on the passion narrative, and it's important for the book of Revelation. But for all the visions that we see, especially in the first uh, six chapters, those seven night visions, several themes run throughout the book. The ideas of temple, king, and restoration, or temple, branch, and gathering. And that would have been important for the people as they are returning, the people as they've come back to their homeland. They need a king, they need a temple, and they need to gather. Fesco says, Zechariah's seven visions, which come before uh, what we see tonight, paint a combined portrait of God returning the exiles to the land, reconstituting his temple, dwelling in Israel's midst, ushering in judgment against the nations and Israel's unrepentant covenant breakers, and bringing about the consummation. So a lot of important things for the people of Israel. And as Fesco says, Zechariah 6, verses 9 through 15, is the fulcrum. It's the midpoint. It's the hinge throughout the entire book. And so this crowning of Joshua is important. And notice we see the context of the crowning in verses 9 and 10. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Zechariah receives word from the Lord. God is speaking to them once again. And notice the occasion. Verse 10, receive Take the gift from the captives. From these guys, I have no idea about them. From Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon. We don't know much about who they are. Other than that, they were Jews and men who had been living in Babylon. They didn't come with that first return under Zerubbabel, but now they have come from a far-off place. They've come from that far-off place, and they now have brought gifts to the temple. So they bring gifts They bring things that were desperately needed. Israel, or I guess, uh, yeah, Israel, uh, where the nation actually was, Jerusalem, the the physical geography where it was uh, after exile, uh, was a place that was destitute. It was a shell of itself. They didn't have much resources. So here come these guys from Babylon, probably had some money, probably had some, have been blessed by the Lord. And so they bring their gifts. They bring gold and silver, mainly, primarily, perhaps for the temple of the Lord, but God is going to use it for uh, another reason as well. Uh, It will be put in the temple of the Lord, but there's a specific thing uh, that this gold and silver is going to be used for. So receive, take the gift, go the same day to this one and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Again, we don't know much about him other than that perhaps he's a metalsmith or he's uh, the, the house where these other three were lodging. Don't know much, but in any case, Zechariah is called to go there uh, to this house that same day. And notice what he must do. Verse 11, take the silver and the gold and make an elaborate crown. The crown is going to be important for this prophecy. And notice what he's going to do with that elaborate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Joshua is the high priest, clearly, at this time. Joshua is also in Zechariah 3, where we see uh, how he stands on behalf of the people, and he's clothed with filthy garments, and the devil's accusing him, and then we see those garments are removed, a sign of imputation, but he really was a priest. And what's so very interesting is that this priest is going to have a crown upon him. That's a bit of an odd request in Israel's history, isn't it? a priest who is a king, or a king who is a priest. Uzziah tried to act like a priest in Second Chronicles 26, and it did not go so well. And many commentators are so puzzled by this that they think that the Bible didn't mean Joshua. It meant Zerubbabel, because Zerubbabel was of the line of David. Zerubbabel was more kingly-like, but it really is Joshua. Joshua is the one who has this crown placed upon his head. And while for the most part it is puzzling, there are other places in the Bible that perhaps make it not so much, that it's not as odd as one might think. In Genesis 14, we have a king who's a priest, right? Melchizedek. 
that interesting figure who comes on the scene with no genealogy, no mother or father, so to speak. Or perhaps Psalm 110, which would have been David's prophecy many years before Zechariah. And he says, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is all about the one who is both king and priest. And so Joshua's crowning is functioning as a symbol, as a type of someone greater. One who isn't just a priest, one who doesn't just sacrifice and intercede on behalf of the people. That's what a priest does, sacrifices and intercedes. Why do we need a priest? Because we're guilty, as the children's catechism says. But we also need a king. And what does a king do? Again, the children's catechism is very helpful. What does a king do? Rules and defense. Why do we need a king? Because we are helpless. And thankfully, we have one who is both king and priest and also prophet as well. But this is prophesying he who would come. And Joshua having this crown on his head was a sign of hope for the remnant. Again, they were waiting. They were longing. They were wanting the temple. They were wanting a king. His, their king would come. They would have this crown and they have this symbol of Joshua having that on his head as a sign that that king would come. So there's this sign. There's this physical act that is done. Then there's the explanation of it in verses 12 and 13. And notice in verses 12 through 13a, we see the one who is the branch who branches out. Verse 12, then speak to him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch and from his place, he shall branch out. Now we know that the branch is not Joshua. We know that the branch is not Zerubbabel. Branch has already come up in Zechariah 3, 8. And there Yahweh says that Joshua is a sign of the one who would come. For he says, behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. But he says just before there, uh, you and your companions who sit before you, they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. And so often in Old Testament prophecy, this one who is actually not that often, but there have been many play or a few places uh, in the prophets that speak about this one who is the branch prior, prior to exile, prior to the Northern kingdom being taken prior to the Southern kingdom being taken in Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, that branch, that one, that sh- the stump of Jesse that would shoot up the one who would shoot up from that thing. And the implication of a stump is that everything's been laid waste. And the implication is exile must come first. And even though the people go into exile, there is the promise of a king who would come. So that the people did not need to fret. The people did not need to worry. The remnant had the promises of God. Even when everything looked bleak, let's be honest, exile was bleak. No king on the throne was bleak. And yet there was the promise of the king who would come. So prior to exile, but even right around exile, it's also in Jeremiah 23 and 33. We read 33 at the outset, but it speaks about the one who is the branch. Behold, or uh, Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6, which is very similar to Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So we know the branch is going to come from David. We know he's going to be a king who executes judgment and justice on in all the earth. We know he's going to be called the Lord, our righteousness. We also see that in Jeremiah 33, which is in the what's called the book of consolation. We see that prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Well, how does that come about? It's because of the one who is the branch. And all those who are in the branch are given that new covenant and forgiveness because of what he would do. But in uh, Jeremiah 33, 14, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Remember when Jeremiah is prophesying, there is no Israel. There's only the Southern kingdom. The Northern kingdom is gone. 
And so the implication is he's looking to a time where the kingdom is going to be united once again. And in reality, this prophecy in Jeremiah 33 and 23 and Zechariah 6, he's looking, they're looking far ahead to something far greater than some physical kingdom, far greater than some physical temple, something far greater that lasts forever. But the Lord, uh, the, the branch is the Lord of righteousness. He is the one who comes from David. God has not forgotten his promises. That is a comfort for the people in exile. God has not forgot his promises. Dear brethren, we have God's word, and often we forget his promises. We have the Christ who has come, the branch who has come, and often we forget God's promises. And thankfully, dear brethren, we have his word that if we are forgetful, we come and we read it again. We come and we hear about it again. We come and be reminded of the salvation that we have in Christ and his promises. The reason being, we are so very forgetful of them. And we can look at the world and go, things seem bleak. We can look at our life and go, things seem bleak. But God has his promises and Christ reigns supreme. So he is the branch. He is the Lord uh, of righteousness. He is David's greater son who would come. And notice he shall branch out from his place, from Jerusalem. Again, the Davidic covenant is not null and void by exile. God's promises shall take place. And the people who have returned, even before the temple is complete, so Zechariah is probably around 520, 518 BC. The temple's not complete till 516 BC. And then uh, the Jerusalem is still a shell of itself, Nehemiah. Uh, is really uh, that's where the temp- or the, the the city is rebuilt. Ezra brings the law. Nehemiah brings the city. But the people, even though there's problems and issues, and and even after the the, the foundations are laid, the people who saw the first temple are crying <laughs> because it's not like the one they saw before. So everything is in a lot of ways. Yes, they've returned, but it's not quite right. And the promise is that the one who is the branch shall come. The one who is greater than Joshua shall come. The one who is greater than Zerubbabel shall come. It gives people hope even as they have returned and things aren't what they thought it perhaps would be. And notice what he does. Verses 12 and 13a. Yes, repeat it for us. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Not Joshua, not Zerubbabel, he. That's why he has to repeat it for us. So you don't get any sort of ideas. It is going to be he who does it, looking past the actual building of the temple to one who's going to build a far greater temple. And remember that temple was the place where Yahweh dwelled with his people. Yes, Yahweh is everywhere present, but as he dwelt with Israel, he dwelt in a special way in that temple. It was a sign of his presence, a sign of his dwelling, a sign of his nearness to them. And brethren, we need a temple, do we not? We need a temple who is greater than just a place in Jerusalem. We would need one who is far greater than what Solomon built. And don't miss the fact that it was a king who built the temple, right? It was Solomon who built the temple, but there is one who is greater than Solomon who has come. And this one, the branch, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. And thankfully, there is a temple that the Lord builds. Now, we know, according to the New Testament, that that temple is Christ's body. Joshua, Joshua, John chapter 2 tells us that very thing. In John chapter 2, Jesus is speaking about himself as the temple. He says in 12, uh, uh, 2 verses 9 through 13, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It's also in Mark 14, 58, uh, Matthew as well. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, not the same as the one in 516, Uh, perhaps they, uh, uh, not the same one, but uh, they had to do or redo uh, some things with that. So it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. 
And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said, but it's his body. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and what? Tabernacled among us. That is, where do we see the dwelling of God in its most pinnacle form? It's in God, the Son, incarnate. That he who is that second person who took on human flesh, that's where we see God's dwelling amongst us. And brethren, even though that second person, the Lord Jesus Christ, has ascended into heaven, and in his human nature, he is at the right hand of God the Father and reigns supreme, you know what he's still doing? He's building his temple. He's building his church. And what is the church called, dear brethren? His body. And we may not see it. We may not always feel it. But Christ has said that he will build his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The church is the new covenant temple. Christ is the true temple. I got the the starting points mixed up there. Christ is the true temple. Christ is the true Israel. And we are the new Israel and the new Christ in him based on what he has done. In Matthew 12, 6, it says that there's something greater than the temple that is here. And brethren, in Revelation 21, speaking about, uh, I believe it is the new heavens and new earth. Why do we not need a sun or, or moon or any of those things? Because he is our dwelling place. Revelation 1, 22, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Christ is our temple. Christ is our light. We have no need of any other. And this is what Zechariah was prophesying of in Zechariah chapter 6. And it's what Paul touches on in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, we saw how Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 speaks about, I think, of that covenant of redemption. Then we see uh, how that is executed. Well, Christ dying, Christ's redemption. But in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yes, dear brethren, Christ is everywhere present. But how does Christ spread his presence to the ends of the earth? It's in his church. That's how he fills all in all. That's why, that's why a church planting is important. Church planting is a blessing. That's why those things are vital and important to how God spreads his temple and his glory and his church, the ends of the earth. And notice that's with Psalm 110. He shall put all things under his feet. The promise that was planned in eternity is executed and accomplished by Christ and applied by the spirit. Henry says, the gospel church is the temple of the Lord, a spiritual house, a holy temple. In the temple, God made discoveries of himself to his people. There he received the service and homage of his people. So in this gospel church, the light of divine revelation shines by the word, and the spiritual sacrifices of prayer and praise are offered. Now, Christ is not only the foundation, but the founder of his temple by his spirit and his grace. As we enter into the house of the Lord, every Lord's day. And as the word of God goes forward, Christ is building his church. As Zechariah prophesied, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. And thankfully, it is the temple the king builds. Let's then move on to the peace the priest brings. That's what a king does, right? He builds and he brings peace. And notice in 13b, we see uh, this one who is both a king and a priest, but he's going to talk about the priest in just a second, but he says, he shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall reign with splendor. He shall reign with honor. As Gil says, that is of the building of the temple. And the phrase denotes that glory of it shall be upon him, shall be hung upon him, and so shall be visible 
Christ is our glory. Christ is the, our splendor. Christ is who we praise and who we honor. And that it would be weighty and heavy, having many crowns on his head, but thereby all the saints who every one of them ascribe glory to him. Why do we come into the house of God, dear brethren, each and every Lord's Day? It primarily isn't to have our batteries recharged, right? It is to come and praise God Almighty. It's to worship Him. When we enter into His house on the Lord's Day, we need to not ask, how is this going to make me feel? But how is my God honored? How is my God glorified? He is a consuming fire and must be worshipped acceptably. That is Hebrews chapter 12. That's why we worship the way in which we worship. That's why we come and worship in the way in which we do. That's why we don't have bells and whistles and, you know, shredding guitars and guys, you know, zip lining in to make it all fun and dandy. That's not what we do here. That is a disgrace. That is blasphemy. That is a denigration of the household of God most high. Uh, uh, definitely the swinging in type of thing. I know there's a lot of good Christians who have shredding guitars. I Maybe I went a little far, but it's still a denigration, I think, in a lot of ways, especially the swinging in aspect, and especially when there's no gospel preached. Again, I get there's people differing on music, that sort of thing. I believe I'm right. Just going to be honest with you, I believe I'm right on things, but you can differ and that's fine. But as long as the the, the gospel has to be there. And if there's all that, what you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with puppets, ponies, and programs, that's what you're going to win them too. And we want to win people with the word of God most high. And we must win them with Christ and him crucified. Gil goes on to say that it would continue and not pass away like the glory of this world, and that he and he alone should bear it. Not Joshua, not Zerubbabel, nor the ministers of the word, nor members of churches, nor any other but himself. He and he alone shall be exalted. And brethren, one of the blessed things is if we've been saved by Christ, are we not trophies of his grace? And are we not examples of his glory and his splendor? And that we come into his house to give him glory and honor and the splendor that he deserves? Brethren, we ought to treat the house of God with more reverence and awe, with joy but also with reverence and awe as we enter in to praise his name. He shall bear the glory. And also notice, and shall sit and rule on his throne. What does sitting imply? His work is finished. He doesn't need to go out and grab swords and stab things. He's sitting on his throne. Why? Because he's crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. And he's bringing in his people. Not one of his people shall be snatched from his hand. He doesn't need to stand, but he sits because the work is done. And notice his ruling doesn't say over all here, but he shall rule on his throne. And the image of rule certainly has Davidic overtones, a king who reigns, a king who rules, but also Adamic overtones. What was Adam supposed to do? Rule. He was supposed to reign, but Adam did not do that, did he? That's why we have the last Adam who has come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. The first Adam is a type of the last Adam. And the first Adam, God enters into, into uh, uh, the first Adam into a what? A covenant of works. And that covenant of works, the terms of that covenant were God enters into a covenant with Adam who represented all mankind. Adam, just don't eat from this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. And here comes Satan, the subtlety of the serpent. He says, did God really say you can't eat from that one thing? That's what he does, right? He points out the negative, not that you can eat from all these un other wonderful things, just that one thing. And what does Adam do? He sins and he brings sin into this world, sin and misery, guilt and corruption because of what he had done. He violated that covenant. But Christ fulfills the terms of his. Christ keeps his in absolute perfection. We see this in Romans 5, as Adam is a type of Christ, through one man comes righteousness. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. By one man, all are made alive in him. And what does he do? He rules and reigns, and Israel's not enough. He reigns over all. 
He is the ruler over all things. He's the ruler over all peoples. And we're going to see more of that in just a moment. But I think there's Davidic, but also Adamic overtones just in that one word to rule on his throne. It's the same word used in Genesis 1. And then notice, he shall be a priest on his throne. Priest and a king. This king priest is Melchizedekian and something far greater than the Levitical priesthood. What's interesting is that in that old covenant priesthood, they could never sit down, right? Because it was never complete. And what does this Melchizedekian one do? Hebrews is all about the greatness of Christ and how it's far greater than the old covenant. The old covenant is also a covenant of works uh, pointing uh, certainly to uh, to cry, the, the, the bulls and goats point to him. But we see in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 through 28. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, that is the earthly temple, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. We see in other places, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near unto him. We have such a high priest who lives to make intercession for us. And the reason being is his sacrifice is done. His sacrifice is complete. We don't need the blood of bulls and goats. And the Hebrews wanted bulls and goats. And the writer says, don't go back to bulls and goats. So who's, uh, so it shall be a king and a priest. Melchizedekian priesthood, a Melchizedekian king priest. And then notice that final uh, a phrase, the final, uh, yeah, final clause there of verse 13, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, two things we need to ask ourselves going back a little bit. Twice he says on his throne. Whose throne is it? Now, it could be the branches throne, but it could also be the throne of Yahweh. Notice throughout this, he's talking about the temple of the Lord, 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 and on his throne. In several other places in the prophets, he speaks about the temple and the throne being Yahweh's. Ezekiel 43.7 speaks in this way. And perhaps it could be translated, he shall sit by his throne. Certainly Christ sits on his throne and reigns, but he sits by his throne. That is the throne of Yahweh. So it seems to be that this could be referring to Yahweh's throne. And this plays an important role when we look at the council of peace shall between be between them both. Now, there's a lot of ink spilt on what this means. So I might not be definitive. So don't shoot me. Okay. But a couple ways we can take this. It's difficult to determine who it's between. Some say it's between Joshua and Zerubbabel. But Zerubbabel is not in the prophecy. So let's rule that one out. The one that is primarily used is the idea that it's the, the, the peace between the priesthood and the kingship. That is the offices of priesthood and kingship. That could also be in view. Many good commentators believe that that is the case. But it's a little odd because there's one guy with a crown on his head. And another, uh, the last view, and it's the one that perhaps I take, is the view that perhaps it could be between Yahweh and the branch. Are there not two figures or two parties involved here? There is the temple of the Lord, and there is the branch who builds that temple. 
And so then whose council is it between? Whose union is it between? Whose agreement is it between? The council of peace shall be between them both. Henry, although he takes, he primarily takes the priest king view, he still recognizes that it could be between the branch and Yahweh. He says it's between Jehovah and the man, the branch, between the father and the son. The councils concerning the peace to be uh, peace to be made between God and man by the mediation of Christ. That is, the branch and Yahweh have counseled together for the peace that they would bring. He goes on to say, by the mediation of Christ shall be a concerted, that is, shall appear to have been concerted, but by infinite wisdom in the covenant of redemption. The Father and the Son understood one another perfectly well in that matter. That is, as we speak in the manner of men and think about that eternal plan of redemption, it was the plan of the three, but one God, but three persons, to bring about peace for sinners, to bring about salvation for sinners. It was the eternal plan of God to save wretched sinners like you and I. That is, the Father plans, certainly the others plan, we're appropriating, but we see the Son accomplishes Perhaps we could say what the Father plans and the Son accomplishes, the Spirit then implies and applies in time and space. This is how the covenant of redemption becomes so very practical for us. The peace that we have with God is because of God's eternal transaction. The salvation that we have in Christ is because of this blessed covenant of redemption. And the way it continues to advance, the way it continues to go forth, I use the language of redemptive history at the outset, or redemptive historical, that's probably not correct. But it's Christ's redemptive historical act by living, dying, and rising again is redemptive history. The next redemptive historical act uh, is when he comes again. But it's not wrong to say that the covenant of redemption is being fulfilled as sinners are saved. As, as those to whom the Father has given the Son, those to whom the Son has won, as they are saved and changed, it is advancing. As the Christ builds his temple, it is advancing. As the King uh, Christ goes to the ends of the earth, it is being fulfilled. There are other places in the Bible that talk about covenants, the word covenant specifically, and peace, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 34. Even too, when you think about Israel, they couldn't bring peace. They didn't bring peace, but one greater than Israel shall bring peace. And notice for whom he brings peace, verses 14 and 15. Those who dwell in the temple. Verse 14, the crown shall be a memorial. The elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah, I have no idea why they changed the names. I told you Zechariah is hard. Gil doesn't say a lot about it. Most of the commentators didn't say a lot about it. But Hen is probably Josiah, and Helam is probably Heldi. Maybe it's their nicknames. I don't know, but it's probably the same uh, guys there. And it shall be a memorial, certainly for them, in the temple of the Lord. And notice what they signify. Even though they are not Gentiles per se, they still come from afar. So notice verse 14, even those from afar, they shall come and build the temple of the Lord. That is, it's not just going to be for Jews, it's going to be for Gentiles as well. I mean, that's also a theme that runs throughout Zechariah 2.11, Haggai or Haggai or however you want to say his name. Um, verses 7 and 9 speak in a similar way. And I shall shake the nations. Perhaps he's the same time as Zechariah. But Haggai, which is one book over, uh, in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, And I will shake the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. It's the Lord who brings peace to the one who is the branch. And it's that what these men signify is that it's going to include men from afar, namely Gentiles. They shall come and build the temple of the Lord.
And then we have two final sentences that are a bit odd. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Probably what that means and affirms is Zechariah's words are going to be true. When it comes to pass, you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me. What I said was true. Perhaps he's saying in this way, my words are certain. The execution of God's plan is the affirmation of this prophecy. That's probably uh, what that sentence refers to. It's a confirmation of the promise. And then, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Uh, That's tough. Probably could refer to two things. One, the obedience of the branch himself on behalf of his people that could be in view. Or it could be that when many come from afar and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to honor his ways because they have been saved, it's also a confirmation and fulfillment of what Zechariah said, of what God has said. You see, prophecy is one thing to say it. It's another thing to see it come to pass. And when Gentiles come in, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Gill says, uh, but when they should in the latter day obey the gospel of Christ, then this would come to pass that they would know that the prophet had his mission from the Lord. God shall see this through. God's promises are sure. They have a memorial. They have an affirmation. They have the promise that the branch shall come and build his temple. And thankfully, we see that the people who build that temple are not just Jews. And for many of us here, are we not Gentiles? So isn't that promise very dear to us, or it should be very dear to us, that salvation isn't based on ethnicity or based on gender or based on status, but it's based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, Paul picks up on this language of those from afar shall come in Ephesians chapter two. We're going to look at that in more detail next time, but you can turn to Ephesians two as we begin uh, to close Ephesians two. We've already seen how Christ who reigns is going to fill all in all and how he fills all in all is by his church. He talks about in verses 11 and 12, about 11 through 13, about Gentiles. Those who were once uncircumcised are now called circumcised. That those who were once without Christ, once aliens from the commonwealth, strangers, having no hope without God in the world. But verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have brought, been brought near by the blood of Christ. Heldai, Jediah, Tobijah, so, uh, Zephariah, Josiah, they all foreshadow this very thing. And I do believe Paul is picking up on that language from Zechariah chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 15. Those who are far off shall come. Then he goes on to say, Paul, in verse 14, Christ himself is our peace. That is certainly between Jew and Gentile. We see in Colossians, it's between us and God. He's abolished the, uh, in his flesh the enmity that is between them. We are a new man from the two, thus making peace. He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. And he came, and notice again, preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Not just Jews, but for Gentiles as well. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So we see the far off aspect here. We see Gentiles coming in, but there's also the temple aspect in verses 19 through 22. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone of the temple, in whom the whole building, being fit together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Christ is our temple. Christ calls those who are, who, those who are afar off. He, Christ also is building his temple and he dwells with us now by the spirit. He dwelt with us in his incarnation. He dwells with us now by the spirit and we long to dwell with him forever 
in that new heavens and new earth where Christ is our light and Christ is our temple, world without end. Again, this is what makes that covenant of redemption so very practical for the people of God. You who are saved and are part of the people of God can be assured that God dwells with you and these new covenant realities that you have and possess are founded upon this transaction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This plan is all about the salvation of sinners. It's all about the salvation that God uh, uh, decreed and executed. It's all about the plan he provides, and he provides all we need, including a king who reigns, a priest who intercedes, and a place to dwell with him forever. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you for your eternal plan of redemption. Thank you for your glory. Thank you that it shines and rains, uh, shines forth in the rain of the sun. Thank you that it shines forth this day as many of us who were once uh, uh, in darkness have been conveyed into the kingdom of the sun of your love. And thank you that we are trophies of your grace, that we glorify you for all that you have done for us. And we confess we do not glorify you as much as we ought. And even when we do, they are weak and feeble. Yet we are thankful that they are accepted in Christ. Thank you for he who is the branch. Thank you that he is our great king. Thank you that he rules and defends because we are helpless. Thank you that he is our priest who's, uh, who sacrifices and who pleads. Thank you that uh, we need him because we are guilty. Thank you that we need a dwelling place, and you've provided that in the Son. Thank you for all you've given to us, uh, all you've provided for us, provided for all that we need. And thank you that we see this in the church as it advances to the ends of the earth. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified as your kingdom does advance to the ends of the earth. So be with us now as we come and partake of the supper. May it be a comfort and encouragement for us. May it uplift us. And may we be reminded of your eternal and infinite love for us, even as we ponder and consider uh, this high and lofty doctrine of the covenant of redemption. So thank you for covenants. Thank you for your condescension by way of covenant. Thank you for your revelation by way of covenant. And thank you for this new covenant ordinance we get to partake of now. Be with us by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.